And if you were here last week, you might be saying, well, didn't you say Christianity isn't a secret, like it's not a secret club, it's not a secret society, there's no secret handshakes or secret codes, like things have been plainly revealed to us? I did say that, and I meant it. (laughs) And I'm not using the word secret in that way today. I'm talking about a secret that has been plainly revealed for all of the world to see. As John said in the beginning of this letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then he's saying that that's the message that he is proclaiming. So maybe a better word is the key to the Christian life. And the key to the Christian life is getting the gospel right. What does it mean to get the gospel right? What does it imply when we say that? It means that we can get it wrong, right? What does that look like, getting the gospel wrong? Well, there's a few different ways, but I think primarily it's confusing the relationship between justification and sanctification. I know those sound maybe like big, scary words, but I promise you it's, they're not as scary as they sound. We're going to unpack those. We're going to walk through them a little bit. Again, we have the booklets up here if you would like to grab one of those and read a little bit more about those. But we want to answer the question this morning, where does the motivation to live the Christian life come from? Where does the motivation to live the Christian life come from? This is the key or the secret to getting it right. This is why we've been going through 1 John. I haven't really mentioned this yet, but many of the things that we're going to be looking at here in 1 John are connected with the things that we've been talking about in our membership class. We've had a a few membership classes, uh, just a shameless plug for that. We're going to be having uh, more coming up if you weren't able to go through those yet. But in our membership class, the second session that we go through is the story of the gospel. And, our, and we go through our vows, our membership vows to become members. And these are the vows that anyone who becomes a member of the PCA church, these are the vows that we take. The first two vows are about entering the kingdom, about justification or adoption. What does it mean to be a Christian? That's the first and most important thing we want to talk about. What does it mean to become a Christian? And then the third vow is growing in the kingdom. And that's about sanctification. What does it mean to follow Jesus, to walk with him, to grow in our faith? So what does it mean to be a Christian? And then kind of collectively, what does it mean to be the church? How are we to live and and love one another? And both of these are identity issues. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be the church? Knowing who you are, knowing your true identity, changes the way you live. The devil has been scheming from the beginning to get into our heads, to get into our hearts, and to tell us that we are something or that we can be something other than who we truly are. Does the Christian life boil down to obey God, do the right thing, then you'll be loved and accepted and adopted by God, and then you'll have assurance of your salvation, which isn't really any assurance at all, if that's the order, or... Is it that we are accepted and loved and adopted by God? Then we have assurance because of what he has done. And we obey him out of that motivation. 
This makes all the difference in the world. And my prayer for us this morning is that God, by his spirit, would show us the reality of who we are in Christ. What he has done for us in our justification. And what our appropriate response is to obey him and walk with him, our sanctification. So if you're already like, whoa, this is really heavy stuff. It might sound a little heavy. It might sound really theological. But I promise that we're going to make it practical. Okay, I promise that we're going to show... I believe all theology is practical, but we're going to see how this really applies to our lives. So let's go to the text, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way. In which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Again, just want to remind you of uh, this this outline. If you didn't get one yet, uh, they're up here or in the back. Uh, on the back side, talked about it a little bit already. The theological test, the moral test. We're going to be seeing those today. Um, again, it's kind of going to be this vertical emphasis on our relationship with the Lord this week, and then next week we're going to see. Uh, this, the social test, how we love one another, and again, the theological test, what we believe. So there's kind of going to be that horizontal emphasis. And these things go hand in hand. Again, just as we saw, love, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're just joining us, I'm to give you a little context of, of where we've been, catch you up to speed. Uh, John begins his letter by talking about Jesus, how Jesus is from the beginning, how Jesus is the eternal life. So he's making his readers, reminding them of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the message that they are proclaiming, he talks about how they have seen Jesus, they have heard him, they have touched him, and now they are proclaiming this message to us. Okay, They're proclaiming it to the church, and it's being written down and passed down from generation to generation, and we get to receive that message talks about fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. He talks about joy, writing so that our joy may be complete. And then last week you saw he reminds us that this is the message, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he had those three sayings. If we say, there are three negative things. If we say that we are um, walking in the light, and when we're not, we lie. If we say we don't have any sin, we lie. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. So there are three negatives and two positives. The positives that were, were that we have fellowship with God and one another, and Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin. And then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those were the two promises. The third positive comes in our 
passage today, which we saw that last week, that the third negative was verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're going to see the positive to that this morning. And it's going to reiterate here, Peter's going to reiterate his purpose in writing at the beginning of chapter 2 for our sanctification and for our holiness. John is burdened for these congregations. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He cares about their sanctification. He wants them not to sin. But he also realizes that they, like himself, they're sinners, right? They're going to sin. They will still sin. So he goes to great lengths here to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ, despite the sin that is still in their lives. Second half of verse 1 there. And this is our talking about our justification. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. John is the only New Testament author who uses this word advocate. The, the other times that it's used, he uses it four other times, all in his gospel all in John's gospel in chapters 14 through 16, and it's all speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, or different translations will say helper, comforter, or counselor. Here, an advocate is one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. He goes before the Father on our behalf. That's what it means that Jesus is our advocate. Talked about last week how God is light. Paul says that he dwells in unapproachable light. So you think that you're going to go and stand before him with your own sin and try to plead your own case? No way. You wouldn't dare. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, alone can speak to the Father on your behalf. But we must ask the question, How? How can he do that? And why will he do that? John answers it in the next verse. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, this is a big word here, okay? Propitiation. Don't be scared by this word. Uh, Some translations, if you have the NIV, it says the atoning sacrifice which is a good explanation of what this means. Propitiation or atoning sacrifice. It means that Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. If you follow sports at all, uh, you probably have heard this word be thrown around, right? Atonement. Even non-religious people like to use this word, atonement. You might hear athletes or commentators talk about it. Right, that someone atoned for their mistakes, right? They atoned for all the bad things that they have done in the past. But the world's definition of atonement is to do something yourself to make up for the wrong things that you have done. But that's not what John is talking about here. That's not what the Bible's picture of atonement is. That is getting justification wrong, and that is getting the gospel wrong. 
Sin has separated us from a holy God. And you, maybe you've seen one of those gospel presentations where it uses the analogy of the Grand Canyon, right? There's this gap between us and God. Uh, I haven't been to the Grand Canyon, but I think if you stand on one side of the Grand Canyon, you, I think you can see the other side of the Grand Canyon, right? Like, you're not jumping over that by yourself, but you can see the other side. Okay, it's a big gap. But the gap that has been created between us and God is infinite from our perspective. We can't even see the other side. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can even begin to imagine, right? If you're standing on the Grand Canyon, you might be like, oh, well, we could devise some, you know, device to shoot somebody across the other. We can't even think of, there's, there's no possibility, there's no opportunity to even begin to plan, how am I going to get from here to there? That's what, how sin has separated us from God. This is why the incarnation of Jesus and the atonement of Jesus are absolutely necessary if we're going to know God and have our sins forgiven. And John's opponents were in some way denying both, both of those truths. They were denying the atonement. They were saying that they were without sin. So basically saying we don't even need a savior because we don't have sin. So atonement isn't even necessary if we don't have sin. And they were denying the incarnation in some weird ideas about saying that Jesus was some spirit being. He came down, but he didn't really take on flesh. It was just a mirage. He didn't really become like us. And if that's true, then we don't have a substitute who can stand in our place. We don't have the propitiation. We don't have the atoning sacrifice. But this is not the New Testament picture of our Savior which is informed by the Old Testament picture from the Day of Atonement. I'd encourage you this afternoon, go read Leviticus chapter 16. It talks about the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he took two goats for two different sacrifices and two different purposes. The first goat was for the purpose of propitiation. The goat was slaughtered, and the blood of the goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people, to appease the wrath of God. And for one whole year until the next day of atonement, God would, in a sense, pass over their sins and not look at their sins because of the blood that had been spilled on the mercy seat. The author of Hebrews makes the argument that Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the final sacrifice. And he uses that picture of the day of atonement saying, we no longer have to continue this ritual, continue this sacrifice over and over because Jesus has once and for all paid for our sins with his blood. But the second goat is for the purpose of expiation. The high priest would come and he would place both of his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people onto this goat and send the goat alive out into the wilderness. So the first goat was slaughtered and his blood was was spilt. The second goat is sent alive as a picture of God, the, the sins of God's people being carried out of the holy place, being carried away from God's presence. And that shows what God does to remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. So when John calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins, this is the exact imagery that he has in mind. This is the imagery he wants us to have in mind, what Jesus has done to bear our sins and to, to remove the wrath of God, to, 
to satisfy the wrath of God and to cleanse us. He is our advocate with the Father and our sacrifice of atonement. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't miss that description. Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's the same word that John used in chapter 1, verse 9, to speak about God. God is faithful and just. The, the Greek word for just and righteous are the same word. It's just translated differently for, for different contexts. Jesus Christ, the just. The Son of God, who is just to forgive our sins. You see how he's tying Jesus together with the Father there in the forgiveness of our sins. The righteousness and the justice of the Father and the Son to forgive us our sins. So where we get the word justification Justification means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous, it's a legal term. Kind of think of a courtroom scene. Jesus goes before the Father as our advocate to plead our case. And then he stands in our place and dies in our place so that we are declared righteous in God's court of law. It's not because we've done anything. It's not because we've been made righteous. Because we still have sin, and that's what John's talking about. But we're declared righteous in God's sight. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He switches places with us. He takes our sin, and we get his righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel. I want to comment real quickly on the second half of verse 2. Might kind of be a hang up for some of us. And it says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is not teaching universalism. This is not teaching universal atonement It's saying that universal pardon is offered. That there is no distinction. Think of John's context with Jews and Gentiles. There is no longer a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus didn't just die for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He died for the whole world. And John uses this language of the whole world to mean all people everywhere without distinction. This cannot mean universal salvation. If you read the rest of John's letter, he comes against that idea over, like, why why would we be here right now if it doesn't matter, if everybody's just saved and it doesn't matter? Why would we talk about preaching the gospel? Why would we, why would John go to the lengths he does to write this letter if Jesus just died for everyone and everyone's going to be saved? In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life, okay? If you don't have life, what do you have? Death, right? He's not talking about just life, life. He's talking about eternal life. So this matters to John, right? It matters what we believe. It matters how we live. He's not just saying, well, Jesus just died for everybody, so let's just do whatever we want to do. This is not teaching universal atonement. All right, practical 
applications regarding justification. First question that we all must answer is, am I a Christian? Have I been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? If you're still striving to earn God's favor, to please God, to get right with God, if you're trying to be your own advocate before the Father, then you're believing in a false gospel. You can never do enough. And maybe you believe that Jesus died for your sins. Maybe you say, I have faith in him alone. But you're struggling to make that head-to-heart connection. How does that really apply in my day-to-day life? I talk with a lot of you. I know, I know that it's hard. I know the struggles. I know the struggles of my own heart to daily believe what I say I believe, right? To really believe it and live it. It's hard. Just knowing head knowledge about Jesus' death, knowing head knowledge about the cross and what he did isn't enough to change our lives. We sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we say we believe that, but then we we leave here and we go out and we feel like it's up to us to live the Christian life, to muster up the strength, to, to be good enough. We struggle to walk with God. We struggle with obedience. Like I said earlier, I'm arguing this morning for a grace-fueled obedience, okay? Write that down. If you don't write down anything else this morning, write those words down. Grace-fueled obedience. Getting the gospel right means experiencing the amazing grace of God in justification, being liberated from the bondage to sin by the blood of Jesus, and relying on that amazing grace to fuel the engine of Christian obedience. Okay, it's just like, again, we talked about with the Ten Commandments. Chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. Justification must come before sanctification. God's grace must fuel our obedience. And that obedience is called sanctification. That's what we're going to be looking at in verses 3 through 6. This idea of assurance comes up again, and it's the main theme of the letter. The main reason John is writing is so that we may know we b- believe in Christ and we, w- we may know we have eternal life. And he, here he goes again, verse 3. By this we know. Okay, by this we know. He's going to say it in verse 3, by this we know, and in verse 5. So two things that we can know. And notice that there are conditions tied to each of these, okay? The first is that we have come to know. We know that we have come to know. I talked a couple weeks ago about the, the perfect tense in Greek, okay? Remember, it's a, it's a dot with an arrow pointing out into the future. So it's a past experience. It's something that has happened in the past that has continuing results in our life. We have come to know him. We have been justified. And we continue to know him as we walk with him. And the condition here is if we keep his commandments. Well, why the condition? Is John just contradicting himself here? 
Is he contradicting what we've said that we're accepted and loved and adopted by God and we have assurance and we obey God? No, it actually affirms that order and we work backwards through it. The condition does not need to be met before we know God. The condition is proof that we do know God. We prove that we know him if we obey his commandments. That's how we show the world. That's how we know ourselves that we know him. And John picks back up on this if we say formula that he ended in chapter 1 with in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Again, the message is to walk the talk, right? Not to be a hypocrite, not to do one thing, not to say one thing and do another. Take off that mask and stop pretending. Walk in the light. And then when you keep his word, the love of God is perfected in you. Verse 5, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And again, this word here is also in the perfect tense. It is something that is done. The love of God, our love for God is perfected because of what God has done. And it continues to be perfected. It is something, so this ties together justification and sanctification again. God does something in saving us to perfect our love for him. But that needs to continue to happen and it needs to continue to grow throughout our whole lives in our sanctification and in our Christian experience. So obviously John is not saying that we become perfect and we sin no more. His whole argument we saw started with you're going to sin and you're going to need an advocate before the Father. So our sanctification is progressive. It doesn't just happen all at once. God doesn't save us and then just remove all the things out of our life, our, our lives that are displeasing to him. It takes time to put off the old self and put on the new self. That new life, that new identity in Christ, it's still a process. And this looks different for all of us. For some of us, we were rescued out of many years of, of rebellion against God, sin against God, a lot of junk in our lives. And I know for myself, it took a long time to kind of root out some of, the, some of the habits, some of the things I was doing, and that chip away that external stuff. But there's always that internal work that is continuing to go on. For some of us, maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and by the grace of God, you had godly parents who modeled to you what it meant to be a Christian. Maybe you didn't struggle with all of the external things that some of us struggled with. But you know in your heart of hearts, right, that even despite all of those blessings from the Lord, all that grace that he showed you through your parents, you know that your, your heart still needs to be worked on daily. So we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat of sanctification being a lifelong process until the day we die. I mean, you're, you're, you should be on your deathbed confessing your sins, right? Like you're not done sinning a few days before you die, okay? So wherever we're at, no matter which of these examples, 
Maybe you're somewhere in between. If you are a Christian, practical application regarding sanctification, you need to answer this question. Am I walking with God? Am I obeying God? Am I growing in my Christian life? By the power of the Holy Spirit, am I being fueled by God's amazing grace? The grace that saved me and justified me. Is that grace fueling my obedience to God and his commandments? This is the question that John raises in his second use of, by this we know, in verses 5 and 6, second half of verse 5 there. By this we know that we are in him, union with Christ, that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's the condition. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John Stott, in his commentary, says, The proof of love is loyalty, and we cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. We cannot claim to live in him unless we behave like him. So where did John get these ideas of Christian discipleship from? He heard them from Jesus himself. Jesus spoke often of love and obedience and abiding in him. I've been encouraging us to to go and read John chapters 14 through 17 in conjunction with 1 John. Read it slowly. Dig into it. And there's a lot of overlaps. There's a lot of things that are are driven home by Jesus there in the upper room after he washed the disciples' feet. If we struggle with questions like, am I really a Christian? And how can I know that I'm really saved? Go to Jesus for the answer. He is your advocate before the Father. He is the atoning sacrifice for sins who took your place on the cross and bore the penalty for your sins and for mine. Then he promised to send another helper, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to testify and to bear witness in our hearts to the truths that he spoke to his disciples, which are recorded here for us to read anytime we want, for us to be reminded and reassured of who we are in him. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, I want to tell you what Jesus said very plainly. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only hope that we have of being rescued from our sin, of being rescued from death. He's the only one who promises eternal life to those who come to him and who believe in him. If that's you, I want to implore you, trust him today. Don't wait. Trust in him alone for your salvation. If you have questions about what that looks like, please come talk with me after the service. I would love to talk with you about what it means to trust in Jesus. I want to close with two passages from John, one from John chapter 14 and one from John chapter 15. 
Notice the similar language here of what Jesus says to what John is saying here. Remember that John is communicating the message that he heard from Jesus, and he is writing it to us so that our joy may be complete. 1 John 1, 4. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells or abides with you and will be in you. John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus kept the Father's commandments and abides in his love. And the promise is that if you are in Christ, then you will do the same. This is grace-fueled, spirit-empowered Christian living. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are called to as followers of Christ. Let us walk in the same way that he walked, remembering that we are accepted and loved and adopted by the Father, that we are assured of our salvation because of Jesus Christ, our advocate and our atoning sacrifice, and that by the power of the Spirit, we can abide in him, and we can obey God, and we can walk with him. Let us pray. God, as we go to your word, as we see what you have done for us, as we see how we are called to live, God, I pray that we would get the gospel right. That we would see that it is your grace that fuels the engine of Christian obedience. It is by your grace that we can live a life that is pleasing to you. It is by your grace that we can come into your presence, that we can pray, that we can ask you for things, that we can confess our sins, that we can stand before you clean and not condemned because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf as our advocate and as our atoning sacrifice. God, remind us of these promises after we leave here. Remind us tomorrow morning when we're back to the grind. Remind us in the middle of the week when the stress is piling up and when life feels out of control. Remind us that you are with us and that your promises are true. That we can come to you in faith. That we can rest in you. That we can believe and hope in the promises that you have given us in Christ. We pray these things 
In Jesus' name, amen.